0: Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the next in STS's summer series of webinars. This series runs every other week and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. STS would like to thank Medtronic for the generous support and sponsorship of this webinar and the STS summer series. Today's topic is economic impact of COVID and implications on the future of cardiothoracic surgery. We want to try and make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. And you can do this by entering questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond as many questions as possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderator for the session, Dr. Joseph A. Duraney. Dr. Duraney is the current president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and the Director of Pediatric and Adult Congenital Heart Surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Duraney, and let me turn it over to you.
1: Well, thank you, Scott, and welcome everyone. So today we have a, a, a different a different topic. We're going to talk about the economics, not actual surgery. And we have a wonderful faculty, and I'm pleased to uh, invite uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Jacek, who is the Vice President of Coverage and Payment Policy and Heart Health Strategies Incorporated in Washington, D.C. Roberta Schwartz, who is the Executive Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer at Houston Methodist and the CEO of Houston Methodist Hospital. And then surgical colleagues, Vinay Badwar, who's the executive chair uh, of the uh, West Virginia University Heart and Vascular Institute. And then finally, uh, Dr. Richard Freeman, who is the regional chief clinical officer at Loyola in Chicago. So welcome uh, to my friends and colleagues uh, from around the country. And I guess I would begin by first acknowledging Roberta, who is who's actually in a tough spot right now in Texas. I know Texas is really... Is really uh, is really dealing seriously with with major COVID issues, and so we are grateful uh, for her to uh, make the time uh, during uh, during this uh, difficult uh, difficult period. So, uh, welcome, colleagues, to our uh, audience. Uh, the way that we thought we would do this is we would address you know financial themes as it relates to the health care system overall. How it relates to hospitals and and sort of uh, hospital systems, and then finally how it affects the individual surgeon. So why don't we why don't we start with the overall impact uh, from the healthcare system, and maybe just high level policy view. Maybe Bob, why don't we why don't we start with you?
2: Sure. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I would probably start by saying that I you know apologize that I can't deliver rosier news. Um, but uh, the, there's really a couple of things that I would bring to everybody's attention to watch and they're all interrelated. And one is obviously just the volatility of the overall economic market. The second is you know, what we'll talk a lot about tonight, I'm sure, are the, the dropping revenues for providers and health systems. Um, and all of this then in turn starts to feed the rate of uninsurance in the country as well. Um, There's just a couple of of data points I wanted to share on that, Um, uh, and I would also say that, you know, there is, you know, a a likelihood um, of a a significant cut in Medicare payments that's coming on January 1st if nothing changes between now and then. Um, So I think on each of those four points, I would just say really quickly, first of all, in terms of the you know, volatility in the, the overall economic markets. I'm not, you know, an economist. I don't wanna, uh, you know, get too far out of my lane. Um, but a lot of you might've seen just yesterday in the news, uh, the, you know, the minutes leaked from an early June uh, Federal Reserve meeting. And they talked about how um, basically uh, the more pessimistic projection is, is no less plausible than the, than the baseline projection. Um, and I think keeping that in, in mind is important because those overall economic uh, dynamics might be just as important as a lot of the healthcare specific stuff we're going to talk about. Um, I would also add that what's fueling that or attached to that are the significant um, employment benefits that uh, Congress passed and um, those are set to expire at the end of the month. So those are likely to have an impact on the economy. And I think it's also important to keep that program in mind because that's gonna inform when Congress thinks they have to act. And we're gonna, you know, we'll talk more, and you can see the slide here about what Congress might actually do um, before the end of the month. Um, So, you know, I'll stop there for now. and, And, you know, and I'll also add that, you know, the American Hospital Association just came out with a report about what their um, uh, estimates are for what the hospital industry is estimated to lose. Uh, and they've updated their previous uh, numbers. And and just for hospitals, not looking at revenues associated with your services and professional services across the board, uh, the American Hospital Association is estimating that by the end of the year, the hospital industry will have lost $323 billion. Um, that's a, a lot of money that has Uh, that's leaving the system. Um, You know, uh, there's most people are experiencing that pressure. Um, I will add one caveat to that. Um, And you, I'm sure familiar with this and have read it as well, that the insurance companies are not seeing claims because of a lot of that foregone care. And um, there are questions about what that means. And, you know, we don't have to guess about that. The insurance companies, uh, a lot of them have been publicly um, discussing their profitability during this. And so will that mean lower premiums next year? Um, how is that going to translate? Um, so I think those, that's another uh, dynamic to watch. Um, I have a, probably a couple other things to say about what this means for um, uh, insurance coverage and who's uh, likely to be uninsured and payer mix, but um, I, I don't want to get carried away at the, at the outset here, so I'll save those uh, for uh, later in the,
1: in the dialogue. Well, thank you. Uh, Roberta, from an administrative standpoint, you're obviously overseeing a, a, a lot of a lot of people in a big system. What uh, what how what would you add to to Bob's comments?
3: Unmute. Sorry, the, the, the classic era of our times. Although I'm feeling like a very odd man out right now, um, because the, everyone else has these lovely blue backgrounds, and I've got you know lots of different uh, busyness going on. Uh, but the um, I think the slide was actually pretty perfect when you look at all of the different dynamics from a policy perspective, from a public perspective, from an insurance perspective, every piece of um, our normal routine daily life that we have come to expect is just almost it's as if someone took all the pieces, threw them up in the air and said, I have no idea how they're going to come back down again. and we don't know what percentage of the business is going to be video when we return, what's going to be in person, how long will it take for people to feel comfortable coming back, how long is it going to take for insurance um, to return to normal and people um, to return to their jobs in an insured way. In the meanwhile, you have states that, I mean, even today, uh, there was a state that voted to um, expand Medicaid. So. Um, It it really, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle at play and um, things unfortunately are not calm enough at this point for everyone to sit at the table and even start putting those puzzle pieces back together. Um, We are still, no matter where you look, in the middle of a COVID kind of crisis type situation, And it just depends, right? So Texas came out, it went out of surge one, it's into surge two, New York's calm right now. Is it gonna go into surge two? You don't know, is it gonna be bigger? Is it gonna be smaller? So no one is on a very um, comfortable footing and therefore survival is almost um, where people are. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, um, that first basic one is that safety level, and because no one feels safe, no one's willing to come to the table and say, "Okay, this is how we're going to re-do um, the policies and the finances to really um, make sure that the healthcare industry is on stable footing." So. I, I listen to it and I um, I feel the pain of all of the different things that are on that slide. Realistically, it's not going to be a pretty year for hospitals. And hospitals that were in um, better financial shape will be able to weather it. I certainly worry about a lot of hospitals that were running on shaky ground to begin with and then have all of this thrown on top of them. Um, and in addition to just that our public healthcare care systems which which really will um, will certainly struggle
1: so let me ask you you know most of the audience is going to be surgeons and to a lesser extent administrators you know from an administrative standpoint and, and and your both of your respective high levels i mean would there be any suggestions you have i mean the surgeons watch this may be wondering is there anything that i can do or should i do would there be any suggestions that you might have that uh, you know for what seems to be quite daunting, but I'm sure there there's there's motivation and enthusiasm to try to to try to help reconcile some of these things at least to the best of of anybody's ability.
3: So um, first of all, let me state my overwhelming um, amount of pride and thanks. Um, to all of our um, clinicians, our um, partners in, in crime to kind of get through this. I think um, it, it's overwhelming to think of how many um, ways that people have come forward and pitched in. So, I mean, I remember during surge one where we turned to all the cardio, cardiothoracic surgeons and said, Hey, guess what? Now that you're the intensivist, you live on your unit, you'll take care of your patients. And they said, Absolutely, 100%, we got it. We're in there. You know, we'll take care of it. And um, when I think getting through this will require that we. Um, We optimize our expenses, right? We minimize our expenses, and we get through the maximal throughput. Um, That means that length of stay, cost per case, all of those kind of things, if they were good before, they have to be perfect now. And they were lousy before, they have to be really great now. So everyone has to come up that trail, even if they weren't ready, very quickly. In addition to that, we have to think about new opportunities for business and getting very creative about how we're gonna serve um, our various communities. So some people have taken to virtual care, um, like a duck to water, and some people are still like, what's that Zoom thing? Wait, how am I supposed to work that? And where am I supposed to come in? So the more creative that people have gotten, I think the better off they will be. And I do, I, I will say it's been amazing to watch the transformation of what has happened during this time um, and new ways that we're really going to provide care um, that is quite astounding. The question is, we made so many leaps forward. Are we going to make three leaps forward and three leaps back as soon as this is done? Or have we made three leaps forward and we'll only take one step back? So I think it's creativity. I think it's an absolute, you know, perfection on the expense side of the equation, and I think it's going to be um, new ways of really doing our business and being able to do it with COVID and non-COVID side by side.
1: All right, let's let's change gears a little bit to the actual hospitals now, and sort of service lines and, and hospital systems, and maybe we can we can start with Vinay. You're you oversee a lot of people and uh, in a lot of different areas. What, what uh, what do we have to look forward to and educate us a little bit?
4: Well, first of all, Joe, thank you for the invitation. This is uh, part of the string of leadership as we go through the COVID crisis. Um, this is something that really will help, hopefully, surgeons and non-surgeons, frankly, that may be uh, participating in this, try to unpack why health systems are making decisions they're making. And uh, to Roberta and Bob's points, um, This is a very dynamic situation. First of all, uh, Roberta and all of our friends at at Methodist and the Texas Medical Center, we're all kind of pulling for you. Um, So thanks for your leadership. Um, what, What Roberta said, really just to sort of break it apart for a moment in terms of what the future holds, would be really talking more a little bit about telemedicine and how we're evolving our ability to do consults. Basically, the punchline is is that, uh, to use the cardiac surgical reference or thoracic surgical reference, you're you're thrown a curveball and you got to think on your feet and adapt. This is all about adaptation. Fundamental to that, before we get into the final bottom line of uh, expense reduction, talk about furloughs and extended hours, all of which are adaptations, maybe for our our surgeon colleagues uh, that are otherwise not initiated in the the nuances of budget, um, to explain why are our administrators coming to us and saying, you know, you got to cut budget, you got to work on expenses, you got to increase throughput. All of those key words that Roberta mentioned very quickly, but there's much to do about all that. So just very briefly, sort of one one budget um, things. Why do we care? Budgets are somewhat arbitrary. Hospitals make budgets, you participate in the budget. Most surgeons or, or uh, department chairs are already doing that very regularly. But once a budget is set, it has to do with uh, maintaining bond covenants. Essentially that hospitals and health systems, uh, they care about their bond rating. And in order to have a good bond rating, such as double AA, A, triple A bond rating, Uh, really equates to roughly 150 plus days of cash on hand, or um, the ability to have an operating margin of 3% or higher. If you have those two fundamental elements and you can maintain your budget, it uh, reflects well on the Moody's and standards of poor's that that really reflect on what that bond rating is. So you, you can, that the hospitals can borrow money at close to 0%, and therefore, you know, make money on their profits and and maintain the general fiscal health of the enterprise. Um, In the the, West Virginia University, we have a, we're not quite as large as as Roberta's program, but we manage a service line that's cardiology, cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, vascular surgery, cardiac critical care in multiple different hospitals. Um, And the health system has been healthy. Now, thankfully, we've been in a a favored state because we responded early. So our ability to adapt and maintain our bond covenants has been high. So as we look at budgets, um, why Roberta was talking about this, it has to do with the revenue cycle fundamentals, which is uh, physician-based and hospital-based, both inpatient and outpatient. So these sort of fundamental elements go into maintaining hospital budgets Um, in the black as much as possible. Now, as Bob said, I don't think any hospital in the United States is in the black right now. Um, They're they're struggling to make up their their budget. So as we come up with these adaptive solutions, in the end, it's all boiling down to those fundamental elements. Um, Hopefully that helps explain why service lines and health systems care and are trying to force these really significant adaptive changes, because at the, the fundamental element, it's about trying to get your bottom line as even as possible for the future and your bond rating over the next couple of years.
1: So uh, Richard, I, maybe you could add to that, and, and, um, and I would ask, you know, in, in cardiovascular, we talk about service lines all, all the time. It's sort of everyday language because we're sort of married to cardiology and and we do procedures together frequently now, and we're just sort of joined at the hip. I mean, in general thoracic surgery, there's probably less of that, but, but tell us a little bit about what you would say to Vinay's comments, and are there service lines equivalent on the thoracic surgery side to a lesser degree, maybe, you know, as oncology service lines, et cetera, pulmonary Sure. So uh, again, thank you for the invitation to be here today.
5: Um, As Binet said, just to continue with his line of thought, uh, locally we're a system of three hospitals an academic medical center and two community hospitals at Loyola. And uh, just to put a fine point on what Binet said, our expenses stayed the same, right? Or went up in some cases as a general hospital um but our elective non-urgent volume decreased to about 30 percent so your revenue decreases by 70 percent but your expenses stay the same so that's what's pushing folks to say we have to do something so that the hole we have to dig out of in six months is a, is, a, is, is not a deep a, a hole um to your point around service lines Cardiology, cardiac surgery, obviously uh, that's an easy fit for most of us in the thoracic world, we're pretty closely aligned with oncology. Oncology, um, because of the patient population, um, saw at least where I live, a very large decrease in folks coming in um, to either follow up or to have non-urgent care. We know from China and Italy, and and now uh, some research here in the United States, Folks with underlying conditions stayed away from the hospitals. Many of them got worse. Many, a few unfortunately probably died during this crisis because they didn't wanna come to the hospital. So it will take, I think, quite a bit of time to convince some of those folks to come back to the hospital for care. Um, Our estimation is if we're fortunate, we'll get about 80% of our volume back in the next year. If we don't have another surge, Um, and so the reason we're estimating 80% is just because we're not going to get some folks back easily into the healthcare system. Um, and so the oncology patients, um, you know, if you're not getting screened, if you're not seeing your pulmonologist, you're not getting your follow-up CT, all those things, uh, our volume is, is down significantly. And I think will remain down, um, for non-urgent cases. So really, um, you know we're thinking about volume um many programs are considering whether to hire or not and and that you know has long-term implications uh so as was said by roberta we don't know where all the cards are going to land we don't have a safe foundation at this point to make a lot of predictions uh, other than making sure that you're as physically responsible as possible and as lean as possible right now
1: so just an extension to that. So, I mean, we we're going to talk a little bit about furloughs and layoffs and 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 um, salary reductions. But wh- how, I mean, now we're seeing what's you know sadly going on in Texas and in Arizona and in Florida, and it's it's just inevitable that there are going to be there are going to be additional spikes you know elsewhere on the country. I mean, how do you where do you draw how do you decide where to draw the line so that you're going to have enough personnel to to, to deal with the issues when they come up versus you know trying to be fiscally responsible you know so to speak R- Roberta maybe why don't you take a swing at that first
3: um, sure you know the the interesting part is having been through two spikes um, so the first one basically capped out here at about 260 patients in our system uh, at any one time that was the most we had plus all the persons under investigation about about 260 positive and now we're at about 520 um, so to give you a deal, an idea of the two spikes. And interestingly, I was looking at a Becker's article today only to find out that Texas actually isn't um, the state with the fastest growing COVID, um, uh, the most quickly, rapidly um, replicating COVID state. I was like, wow, we're not even on the list, um, despite the fact that we have so many cases. Mm -hmm. So in spike number one, we had huge amounts of our staff home, and we had to create programs where we would keep people's salary whole even though they were working from home. And right, lots of businesses did that through March and April um, when they had this staff home and we kind of just stopped everything while we went into quarantine. Well, quite honestly, looking back, I probably could have kept a lot of the business going through that time and it took me a very long time to get that engine started again. Uh, people all the things that people have said they're fearful they don't want to come back they're afraid doctors didn't want to come back Um, you know i can give you lots of different stories of um, getting the engine started that was really painful Um, are we ready should we do it Um, even now kind of where we're running in a bifurcated covid and non-covid world and we continue to do surgeries both in a covid and non-covid world Um, we watch as we're kind of balancing these two populations. And I anticipate that we will be balancing these two populations into 2021, right? So as we're doing this, it gives people more or less comfort in doing it. Now in surge number one, we sent our people home. And in surge number two, we're asking those same people to do extra overtime shifts and come in, and I'm carrying in travelers, and I'm doing everything to bring additional people on because the people I pulled that were at home, I utilized in the COVID environment in surge number one. Well, now, as I'm trying to operate both, I need more people, right? So, more people and not necessarily more business, it's not really good to keep that budget where you necessarily want it to go. But I think I'm, I'm, relatively pleased, I will tell you the messages coming out of everybody's boardroom from the healthcare perspective is do the right thing. And out of the bond agencies is do the right thing and just do right by your community. So I will tell you, I've, I've never felt pressured. It, it's It's hard to not feel pressured as the incident commander in our, in our system to do anything but the right thing. Now, does that mean that all of us, are going to take it a little bit potentially on the salaries, yes, it does mean that we may do that. But at the same time, look around us at what's happening and how many people have lost jobs and how many people are, are not able to go back to work now. And then really realize how eternally grateful we are that we are in the positions we're in. And I know that's a very hard message, but. Um, but I think that I, I still, no matter um, where you are and how difficult it is, we are blessed to be in the healthcare environment where other industries, I, I don't think I'd want to be in the airline industry right now or the hotel industry or a mm-hmm. lot of others. Um, and there are people perceiving that we, the healthcare industry, are going to get rich on COVID. And I keep having to do a lot of seminars on how not true that fact is.
1: So let me you you alluded that this is going to drift into 2021 for sure. So let me ask Bob. So we know that in January, uh, this specialty is going is going to take a significant cut in reimbursement. And I think one of the things that I, I think each of you have alluded to, and I know Roberta actually said out loud that the, you know the 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 cardiothoracic surgeons have such a broad scope of skill sets and can be deployed elsewhere. We have. Um, always been able to help out in various venues, whether it's the ICU, whether it's the emergency room, wherever it is, do you think that in in some ways that could be uh, beneficial to what is going to be forthcoming in 2021 in terms of the specialty and maybe a stronger reconsideration for what those cuts should be, recognizing the value that we bring to the healthcare industry?
2: I mean, I think that there's, there's an argument there. I, you know, just to, to get everybody up to speed, what we're talking about is that on January 1st um, of 2021, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are going to are, are, have planned to implement a, uh, I, I'll call it a foundational change to office and outpatient e and <clears throat> and when you make changes inside the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, they have to be done in a budget-neutral manner. And what that means is there's going to be a ripple effect on spending throughout the entire Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, and it's going to land right in your lap. And so card, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons can expect to see a 7 to 8% cut in Medicare payments um, uh, in 20, uh, 2021. Um, now, I think asking you, you know, that, that wasn't COVID specific. That was set before all of this uh, came to be. And I think that asking you to shoulder that in the current environment is unconscionable. Uh, and we're not even talking about the intangibles of the pressure that you're under and worrying about going home and, and family members getting sick. And I think to put that pressure on providers and health systems that employ those providers and therefore built for those services is... Um, difficult. I can tell you that in in having the conversations in DC um, that, you know, we are trying to make those arguments. Your uh, DC office uh, is, is making those arguments. Um, And I think that, you know, having those cuts hanging over everybody's heads while all of this other stuff is going on that like Dr. Schwartz said, you can't control, there's no clear solution for, and you have to triage through it until we know what ground we're standing on. This is one thing, that the Congress or the administration could make go away with a snap of a finger, and um, and so I, I do think that 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 um, that that is there. We'll will know more uh, in the very near future. The the proposed rule for 2021 should be coming out any day now. Um, I was. Wondering whether it was gonna come out before we started this conversation tonight and I was gonna have to speed read 1200 pages, but luckily it did not. Um, But we'll see that soon and then we'll know a little bit more. Um, I don't think from what we've heard that Congress in any sort of COVID-4 package will, um, is inclined at this point to address the cut right now. Um, I think that uh, what we're looking at is probably a late in the year um, solution from Congress if Congress is going to get involved. But that all remains to be seen and is really dependent on what we see from Medicare when they put out their 2021 proposed rule soon.
1: So let's uh, let's shift back to Vinay and, and Richard here. So, you know, we want, I mean, obviously we have to face the reality of, of what the economic um, impact is going to be. But at the same time, we want to try to find you know what is what is positive and favorable. We don't want to discourage medical students from considering a career in cardiothoracic surgery. We don't want the the young surgeon workforce to um, become discouraged. And uh, what uh, maybe Vinay first from a cardiovascular standpoint, and then Richard, what what would be, what do you think would be the things in the face of the of the concerns that we have? What would be the positive things that the that the surgical workforce should should look forward to or take advantage of to make the best of this difficult time?
4: Well, and as I said earlier, uh, a great question. It's, you know, the specialty is not changed. It's just the external environment that has, and people will still get cardiothoracic illnesses and cardiovascular illnesses, and they'll still need excellent surgery and still the specialty of hope. So with with that noted, um, we just have to be more adaptive to this change. And I think the, the private practitioners, um, to Bob's point, I think will feel a pinch probably more so than the employed physicians. And so as one thinks about the uh, targets and adapting, we all feel for our private practitioner colleagues, but um, understanding uh, um, as you evolve your specialty, um, probably over the course of the next 12 months is not the time to bring in the shiny new device or new tool that's a high cost item and being uh, more adaptive and understanding to your administrative team that you basically want to work on the expense reduction side of things. While salaries are gonna be one type of expense reduction, they're not the only thing. In fact, in our institution, we've not cut salaries uh, to anyone. We didn't furlough anyone. We basically gave them at least 75% of their hours Uh, And some volunteer leaders cut their salaries, but voluntarily. Um, This will pass, hopefully. Uh, We'll have to live in a new world, but uh, the specialty will be um, undiminished and hopefully will be the phoenix out of the fire, as you've mentioned on some other COVID-related webinars. So we just have to hold steadfast and be adaptive. I think um, the genie's out of the bottle now for telemedicine and televideo visits that I think all um, uh, surgeons should uh, get with the program when it comes to um, social media utilization interaction with patients, uh, whether it's through EPIC and the EPIC video visit, whether it's through telephone visits. Um, Congress recently passed um, the relative equivalence of funding for consultative services by phone. Actually, it was led by West Virginia and our Board of Medicine chair, Dr. Chala, with our senators, uh, Mansion and Capito, that um, basically put forward a, a rural um, element so you can actually call patients that don't have internet. So being adapted to these types of new environments become important. Um, also, our, our ED visits, our ED visits are down by 40%. Um, you're being part of a health system that's creative to maybe share with the payer provider services that Bob was outlining or hinting towards that um, having some sort of a shared model, essentially understand what this means and work with your administrative teams or your department chairs to just participate in a solution. The specialty won't change, but how we come through it will.
1: That's great. And I just would remind the participants that they can submit questions and you actually answered one of the questions uh, to a great degree, uh, Vinay, that just came in about not investing in, in new and high grade technology, at least maybe right now over the next number of months until some of this dust settles. But uh, back to you, uh, Richard. Um, anything else to add to that, uh, to, to Vinay's comments?
5: Thanks, Joe. A, a couple of things. Uh, I do think that um, offering your health and assistance as a cardiothoracic surgeon to your hospitals. To reduce expenses, you are going to know potentially some ways uh, within your system to reduce expenses and volunteering to help with that goes a long way for everybody involved. As Vinay said, as cardiothoracic surgeons, we take care of two of the most common deadly maladies out there, uh, heart disease and lung cancer. For the general thoracic surgeon, we're going to have to work to get patients to come back to the hospital. Uh, either for imaging or for follow-up. And I think that's very important. We are starting ad campaigns to say it's safe. Here's what we're doing to make things safe, to come back and get your screening test or whatever you need. So as a specialty, I think we need to help with that and make patients feel comfortable. Part of that is definitely telehealth. I know everybody's saying that, and I completely agree. You've got to be on a telehealth platform Uh, If you're at a larger place, you'll have help with that. If you're in private practice, there are uh, platforms that you can sign up for today free and be using it today with your patients. It's the right thing for the patients and it will definitely help your practice. Um, As far as uh, the specialty itself, I I think that what's been mentioned about staying away from high cost items is appropriate. I worry that we're going to need to take care of our fellows and residents who are graduating who may not find a place to land for you know six months to a year until things recover. So I am trying my best to say, how can we help you find a place? How can we keep you here? How can we take care of you, the future of our specialty, until this crisis is over and then you move on to a more permanent location? I think that's very important. I, I am concerned that long-term this will probably swing the pendulum a little bit. It's, it's swung all the way to uh, one side, which is employment. It swung back 20 years or so ago to hospitals divesting of, of physician practices. Back 10 years ago, and I'm worried that this may be uh, one of the forces that pushes it back toward hospitals divesting of physician practices because they're so expensive to own. So I think that has to be kept in mind uh, for a lot of physicians right now. Uh, who are not in an academic model, um, that, that may change over time. Um, you know, one of the potential silver linings out of this is that certain places, and I think Methodist in Houston is one of them, we've certainly been one of them, have seen that ECMO can be life-saving for some of these patients. And so there are some things coming out of this that are potentially positive, but it's, it's going to be a rough six to 12 months.
1: So, we talked a little bit about the young surgical workforce. What about the older surgical workforce or any is anybody seeing you know earlier retirements from people that were sort of close to it and perhaps creating a situation where we're going to have insufficient you know surgeons that are ready to go when things you know do bounce back? Roberta
3: I have not i I think we're if you think about it we're less than six months into kind of from reality of this hitting our coast to where we are today, and I don't, I haven't found um, that I have a lot of people declaring themselves, um, "I'm going to retire because of this." I do find that I have enough people who are nervous to come back to work, and I've never heard so many people say to me, "Let me tell you how old I am." Um, and so people kind of walk into my office and pronounce their age, and I'm like okay like I, I, I hear what you're telling me I hear that you're nervous you know I know uh, this is one way or another but I keep telling people we're gonna have to get back to work and you know the the bifurcated working you know you are as cardiothoracic surgeons you work in essential services it's hard for me to tell you that there's anything that you do and I've grown to hate the word elective hate um, There are, we work in an industry where the term elective is like, I'm going to have a facelift as opposed to elective for us is a scheduled case Um, and a scheduled sometimes when we've optimized a patient. So, you know, as we look to kind of getting back to business. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be hard for administration. It's going to be hard for surgeons. It's going to be hard for staff. It's going to be hard for beds. It's going to be hard for equipment. There are all of these concerns that are very real, but you need to get the human capital over those mountains and get people back to what are essential services. And, you know, when people say to me, even now in the middle of surge 2 when they say, well, we may have to like titrate down certain services to bring up others, I sit there in my head going, am I saving one group of people only to kill a different group of people? You know, it's, I, I recognize that these are, are things that are weighing. Now, as, as thoracic and cardiothoracic surgeons, one of the things I would tell you is some of the people at the older end of the spectrum are not used to doing business development. And as their business drops by 20 or 30%, pounding the pavement and going to visit referring physicians is like, what did you suggest? Did you suggest that I go out and like go visit back with people? Like go to their office, call them? And, you know, that's something that a lot of people haven't done in a very long time. And that may be necessary. If you see a 20% drop in your business, there's a lot of things that you're gonna to have to do to get that back. Telemedicine's one, business development is one, making new making new friends is another one. And, and so I think that's um, something that don't rest and rely on the fact that your marketing department alone is gonna solve this issue for you.
1: So comment, a quick comment from each of you on salary reduction. So I think Vinay, you said you have not had to resort to that yet at this point. I think many centers have, we certainly have here um, um, it's salaries are gonna be reinstated, you know, soon, but how do you decide when you've implemented a salary reduction, when you should, you know, get it back to where it was in the face of this sort of changing dynamic, you don't really know, there may be a surge, there may not be a surge, you wanna keep your staff and faculty motivated and feel like they're valued, uh, uh, you know, how? what kind of metrics should be used to help an institution decide when they should go back the other way. Richard, you guys I think just had salary reductions in your institution, correct?
5: We, we did. We asked for a voluntary uh, 15% reduction across the board for all physicians um, and had maybe one or two people out of 800 say no. Um, I think that we made the case to them that it was important and we greatly appreciate their cooperation. Um, that started in April, and so July 1st, we're gonna give back half of that to everybody. And then we're gonna look at our uh, revenue by month. And for each month that we hit our three COVID targets, we'll give back that percentage. And if we can get three rolling months um, where we hit our targets, then we'll be back at 100% salary. Uh, We felt like that was reasonable to give people some um, money back for the incredible amount of work they've done in the last three months and then to give them an an incentive to continue. Uh, As Roberta said, you've got to not only convince some patients to come back, but sometimes you have to convince some doctors to come back. So uh, incentivizing them to come back, take care of their patients, we felt like that was the right thing to do. That reduction certainly does not put us in the black. But it just makes the hole less deep that we have to dig out of. Uh,
1: Bob, and, has there been any? I mean, I think almost every professional work domain has suffered, you know, reductions in salaries. What about in, in yeah. your, uh, in your career, you know, path and your colleagues? What is the, uh, you know, what's the status there? Well, uh, DC is
2: still churning along so i wouldn't worry about this town um and there's a lot of activity here um so you know i i I think that 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 it's it's not it's not quite the the same for the the folks in my line of business at least yet um i would add though um on the comments that were just previously made that it's also important to to point out and probably going to be really frustrating to get people to um to uh, wrap their heads around, but even when the patients do return, <clears throat> what's under the hood um, from a finance perse- perspective is very likely to look different. Um, and that's one of the reasons that at the beginning I mentioned the, the unemployment rates in the market. You know, today we saw that the unemployment rate is at 11.1%, which, you know, it's, it's still high, but it's going down, and, uh, um, but it's still, you know, above 10%. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did a study um, about how this translates to the rate uh, of uninsurance or who your insurance coverage is. And when you see these high uninsurance rates, it changes the payer mix of the patients that you're going to see. And so, you know, if we were to hit a 15% uninsurance uh, rate of unemployment, um, they estimate that we will see between uh, five and eight million more people in the United States that are uninsured. Um, and that notwithstanding, um, a lot of the, the what will happen was that patients will be covered by Medicaid. Um, you'll see 8 to, 10, uh, eight to 14 uh, million more people covered by Medicaid, so even when the patients start to return, what your payer mix looks like and how that impacts the underlying finances um, is really going to play a big role, and so you know volume wise or bed wise things might look or feel like they're back to normal but finance wise that's not necessarily going to be the case
1: great i think before we get to closing comments i know Vinay you were maybe going to make a comment about the cares act did you want to make a a brief comment about that or what what should the practicing surgeon know
4: uh sure i mean our um administrative colleagues roberta and bob can probably comment more, but, you know, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, really, it's $2 trillion, of which only 5%, really, it might change, but it's are only healthcare-related, and so just for your, our audience to know that their their hospitals are actively trying to uh, secure as much uh, revenue as possible, I see a smile on Roberto, she's um, probably got a whole team trying to, to, to secure that. Uh, that has to do with the Medicare fee for service, both uh, the physician and providers, as well as, and I think there's about $50 billion for that, um, and then the rest, about 5 to $10 billion based on the high-impact hospitals, the safety net hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, the Medicaid and CHIP program, as uh, Bob mentioned, and of course, rural health. So um, our uh, institution benefits from three out of that list. And that's been, it's not the only thing, but it softens the blow. But being adaptive uh, in terms of how we fiscally respond, um, I think to key on a little bit of what Richard was saying is that while uh, at our institution, we haven't mandated salary cuts. I know uh, there have been strong volunteerism. Um, uh, I know that uh, University Hospitals of Cleveland had to do that similar to Loyola. Uh, though we had asked for volunteer salary cuts, uh, some did, some didn't. Uh, what we have done, though, we saved a little bit on the expense side, albeit protracted by uh, reducing or eliminating the matching benefits program. Um, so it just basically kicked the can down the road for a little while, uh, for at least through 2021. Um, these types of things you should expect. But I think what Roberta was saying earlier is that for surgeons, if your volumes are low, um, open up your OR time to other providers. Anything that can generate revenue, bring cases through, um, through your, your your ORs, even if it's not a cardiac case, let it happen. It's okay. Um, it's time to just work with all of the teams around the hospital to generate as much throughput as you can. Um, and so the throughput elements becomes very important in terms of financial adaptation um, their expense reduction that Roberta had mentioned becomes very important um, and then of course that the even extended hours uh, unless you're COVID heavy and in the surge um, right now for those states that are not in the surge that's those are all things that you should be prepared to do to try to get back to a healthy standpoint before a surge happens uh, and we hope that that doesn't in some of the states
1: anybody else want to make any comments before i ask each of you to tell us what the the greatest silver lining is there's a number of questions but it's going to it'll be difficult to get through all of them and to be respectful of everyone's time did we leave anything out of the of the basic nuts and bolts of uh either the overhaul health care system we didn't talk much about private practice i mean that's becoming a, a smaller and smaller fraction of the practicing community but uh, would there be anything from a financial standpoint that might be different from an employed surgeon for in a hospital or a hospital system versus those that are in private practice or is sort of the private practice day model really sort of going to gradually fade away with the way things are evolving?
5: I think it may uh, go the way of uh, private practice cardiology about 10 years ago where it's just very hard to sustain yourself. Uh, and COVID may, in my opinion, push that forward faster, but I think that trend has been there for quite a while.
1: So you think in five years, private practice will be of historical significance only for the majority of specialties in healthcare?
5: care? Um, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think for cardiothoracic surgeons, uh, yeah. it will be a more rare uh, find than it was um, 10 years ago. You'll still uh, see people, but they're going to have very tight affiliations and PSAs and other arrangements to fill the gap.
1: In in my opinion, any other comments, Roberta a on that, or Bob?
3: Well, I can tell you, a lot of our um, private physicians and smaller offices, um, they did get the. Um, uh, the protection of that was going on from the federal government for March and April, they got the paycheck protections. Um, but the surge to, uh, if things close down again, uh, if they're unable to practice, will um, they'll have some trouble paying rent and paying their expenses and all of uh, that type. And I do find that at a time where hospitals can't necessarily pick up a lot of additional people, Um, they will be coming to hospitals and saying, I need, I I need to kind of move into the employment sector. It does make me very nervous. They have not begun that yet. Um, but I, I will say I'm very nervous about it. um, because I, again, you can't layer on a whole bunch of new expenses right now. Um, and so I, I makes me a little nervous.
1: So maybe just an extension of that because there is a question here about the role of locum tenens models. Um, what would, a, particularly for a young surgeon who maybe just have finished or is going to be finishing, they've not been able to secure a job, uh, we're, we're sort of painting a picture that private practice may be sort of uh, uh, gradually fading away. Uh, is, is a locum tenens model a model that should be considered or is that uh, also unstable, Vinay first maybe and then Richard?
4: Well, I would say maybe for the um, Mm. retiring surgeon or a surgeon that's on the way of retirement, hypothetically a private practitioner that's looking to transition, that might be a reasonable solution if they can't find a health system like Roberta's that are willing to embrace them, um, which is going to be challenging. However, I, I honestly would feel deflated if that happens to our young graduating uh, fellows and residents. I think all of us in the specialty, it's incumbent upon us to embrace them, find jobs for them, like Richard said, in terms of either hiring them or uh, supporting them, sort of bridging them through, um, whether it's a super fellowship or whatever it is, or helping them. And I think this is where mentorship comes in pretty heavily, which is a fundamental uh, building block of the STS to really, really find jobs for us. For, for our young people, because if they get started on the wrong foot, uh, locum tenums is not the foot they want to start on. Um, so just use your mentorship pathways to try to find something to help you. Okay.
1: All right, well, we're, we're, I think we're going to get ready to wind down here. If I could ask each of you to just, if there was one positive economic you know, factor that we've learned from this that will stick with us forever moving forward. Um, what would that What would that one thing be? Roberta, we'll start with you.
3: Um, I, I think that if I had to say a silver lining, the switch to telemedicine and new models of care and new models of organizing care around the patient are without a doubt um, forever changed by COVID and in a very short time. I think I believe that that would take anywhere from five to 10 years to mature to the point at which it has already matured. And if there's one thing I can put, it's that the second one is the bond by which I think I look at whether it's Dr. Lundsen or Dr. McGill or Dr. Ramshandani, like all of the people, the bonds are even tighter today. Um, than they were before, and I loved them before. But now it's we know we are close in bed together to survive this, and I think that that is um, pretty impressive and pretty incredible. It it it's absolute pride of just survival together. That's amazing.
2: Ah, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be hard to not say telemedicine. Um, so I'll just say it and get it out of the way and move on to another point. Um, but I do, and I do think that one of the pieces of that is. Is very is, is a very specific piece of what's happening with telemedicine, and that's the ability to get to the patients where they are, um, not necessarily from an originating site like we were like we were used to. So I think that's one thing. The other thing I would say, you know, just from my perspective being in uh, DC, working in the advocacy world, is I do think that for the policymakers that this crisis has, has, has shined a light, I think um, some uh, inequities in the system that need to be addressed about um, the margins that you're asked to operate under and that they're not as lush as maybe some people had assumed and how little it took um, to to cut into that. So I do think that there's a recognition of what what the, the environment is like that hopefully will lead to some better changes going forward
1: yeah the advocacy thing just to just to digress to that again because i think that's an important point bob and i think that you know the sts has certainly been you know the poster organization in our specialty for for advocacy and i i know that early on in the covid in the covid crisis you know i was uh, you know with some of my uh, my colleagues in the washington office you know there were many conversations with with people in washington and and you know making connections to the industry world and stuff to try to improve PPE this and that have access to the different resources that were necessary and i think the the advocacy message is something that we really i mean surgeons sort of think about going to the operating room and going to their office and taking care of patients and and doing surgery but the, you know the advocacy voice of this specialty you know is so important and now is the time i think to really energize You know our surgeon colleagues to get more involved because it's been really um the unsung hero of 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 the organization in terms of what it's been able to do for us to really support and promote the specialty uh, of cardiothoracic surgery so thank you for bringing that up richard
5: well i i have to admit i think telehealth probably is number one number two for me though um, is just society as a whole uh, recognizing what most of us and our nursing colleagues do every day, and the value of hospitals and the value of a healthcare system, we've heard for years that we have too many beds and too many ICU beds and all that kind of stuff. I think what may come out of this, hopefully, is a discussion about our, our healthcare system and where it should head in the future, and that it does need to have capacity for things like we're going through right now.
4: Great. An A. Um, to not be repetitive, I would basically summarize this as unity. So the days of the us versus them, providers versus healthcare systems, those those have to be gone. The them is COVID and other foreign and actors that even one potentially on the horizon uh, in the future, which we hope won't hit our shores. But you know, unity with your administrative team, unity with your colleagues to be more efficient, unity with your nursing staff. Um, uh, Really, uh, just adaptation uh, and being unified together to solve these types of problems.
1: I think that's right. I think adaptation is a word I've heard a lot during the course of this hour, and certainly unity and collaboration with your, with actually all the allied healthcare providers, with your medical counterparts. Um, you know, this is a specialty. I think the greater the pressure, the greater the performance. We've said this before, and it's a. Uh, it's really been quite impressive, and um, I want to thank each of you for uh, for educating us and enlightening us. Uh, uh, particularly uh, Bob and 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 Roberta, looking at this from a non-physician perspective, and 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 keeping us uh, informed and on the straight and narrow. And of course, to my surgical colleagues, uh, Richard and Vinay, uh, thank you again for your insights. You're sort of you know you're you're willing, wearing multiple hats now between the practice of surgery and the administrative side, and it's not an easy thing to do. And I think you're two examples of of individuals that are doing it really very, very well. I also want to acknowledge Medtronic. They've been so gracious to support, uh, you know, all these webinars in the summer series. And I'm gonna turn it back to uh, Scott now to uh, make some closing remarks. And my sincere thanks to each of the panelists and my sincere thanks to uh, all of the participants and viewers. So thank you very much, Scott.
0: Thank you, Dr. Duraney, and thank you to all our panelists today for their participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow at sts.org, as well as on the STS YouTube channel and on the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. We hope you'll join us on Thursday, July 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time for the next webinar in our summer series. Thank you all again and hope to see you back here next week.